I think ideally we all want a God who will answer prayers, an interventionist God, a God, as Garrison Keillor might put it, who does what needs to be done. The God of Mark chapter 10, verse 27, with God all things are possible. And while that verse is comforting, if we are honest with ourselves, it doesn't always seem to work out that way. All things may be possible, but all things are not probable. All prayers are not answered. While we can feel God's presence, we do not always get what we ask for, and what we can ask for can be our deepest need, the end to suffering. The problem of the existence of suffering with our picture of an omnipotent and loving God has vexed us from the beginning. Even Jesus said, Father, why have you forsaken me? Put another way, God, where are you in my suffering? My mom fought cancer through my teenage years and died when I was in college. We always suspected her cancer was the result of all the radiation she got when they treated her for tuberculosis as a child. Up until 1945 and the discovery of streptomycin, tuberculosis was the deadliest disease on the planet. And even today, with antibiotics, this lung disease still kills close to two million people a year. In Michigan, in the 1920s, the doctor's treatment for TB patients was having them sleep outside to breathe the cold winter air. And my, yeah, and my mom would wake up with snow on her blankets. And they also x-rayed her chest almost every week to see how things were progressing. And they were not shy with radiation back then. Even my older sister remembers getting x-rayed in the 1950s at the shoe store with a fluoroscope to see how her shoes fit. When I was growing up in Dallas, our family attended a church much like Covenant. We used an education program called the Character Research Project that only Bill Hamilton can tell you about. <laughs> To get a sense of this congregation's theology, I had not heard that people were born into sin and needed to accept Jesus until I moved away from home and heard it from an evangelist coming through my dorm. How that all played out is another story because here I am a covenant. <laughs> my mom was a really smart lady and especially like Tillich and Bonhoeffer. She had a strong faith. But when things were looking bad for her and she looked to see if it would take more for God to answer her prayers for healing, she decided to go outside of her faith experience and way outside of her comfort zone. This was in the 1960s when faith healers Oral Roberts and Catherine Kuhlman were on our black and white Philco TV set every Sunday. And one evening, 
Mom and I got dressed up in our Sunday best and went to see Kuhlman at the Fondren Auditorium on the SMU campus. I was amazed. The little black and white images were gone and I was looking at a stage with a brilliant red curtain and a spotlight trained on Kuhlman with outstretched arms in white and she looked like an angel. It was dazzling. And Kuhlman called out to us saying, there is someone in the audience with back pain. Come down to the stage. And down they came as she called, along with the bad shoulders, the kidneys, the stomach disorders, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. Down they came all. And Kuhlman walked in front of them and lightly touched them, and they collapsed. It was like a line of dominoes falling, except a large man was walking behind the people and catching them as they dropped. And I learned later that they had been slain in the spirit. But somehow, Kuhlman did not sense my mom's cancer, and she was not healed that night. And as we were leaving, my mom heard someone say, I don't really feel better, but I think I will. And she left disappointed, but wiser. And when that didn't work, she reached out to a family we knew, the Heaths. And David Heath had learned how to speak in tongues at Oral Roberts University. And they came over to our house and prayed over my mom. And still, she did not get better. And after trying everything she could think of, my amazing mom finally came to peace with her disease and the end it would bring. The memory of how my mom died is tough for me to rationalize in a world where the miraculous can seemingly happen. It appears to me like a commingled duality, unexplainable events of goodness and unexplainable neglect. For example, when I worked in Clear Lake, I was driving down Pine Lock Boulevard and I watched as an elementary age girl on a bicycle, pedaling as fast as she could go, threaded straight through four lanes of fast moving traffic that never had a chance to see her or slow down. She couldn't have timed it. Patrick Mahomes couldn't have timed it. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. She should never have survived the first car. People of faith might call that a miracle or God's hand at work. But I temper the memory of the girl in traffic with my mom's illness and dear loved ones taken from me by suicide, accident, and disease. The life tragedies and suffering that befall the lives of every one of us. Because of this seeming randomness, some look at suffering and question God's existence. Some of our conservative brethren have pushed back against this atheism with intelligent design theory. Simply put, ID 
says that something like the eyeball is so complex and amazing that it could not happen by chance of mutation or natural selection. It would be like finding out that by chance the novel War and Peace had been randomly typed by bored, blindfolded chimpanzees. And if there is a design like the eyeball, there has to be a designer. Ergo, proof of God's existence. The trouble with this argument, aside from the science, is that if you give God designer credit for intervening with the eyeball, you also need to give God designer credit for our body's frailties. If God intervened with the eyeball, why didn't he intervene with narrow birth canals, throats that carry both air and food, sinus cavities, and a hinge joint instead of a ball and socket joint for the knee? Could we not see football coming? <laughs> the best you can say for the God of intelligent design theory is that God was there for the eyeball and took a breather for the appendix and male pattern baldness. <laughs> this is the argument Bishop Spong made when his first wife had cancer that went into remission. When people would say her recovery was God's work, he would think, but what about those who didn't recover? If you give God credit for the intervention of healing, you have to give God credit for the dying. And according to Spahn, that would make God a monster. Here are some ways we try to make sense of the contradiction of a loving God in the face of human suffering. In the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? The authors conclude that we just live in a random world. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. God does not intervene. Biblical scholar Bart Ehrman notes that ancient Hebrews wondered why bad things happened to them. Good people, faithful people who were attacked on the Sabbath when they could not work or fight. Their answer was, bad things happen to good people because of sin and demons. And then there's the Old Testament God of justice, not the God of love I was raised on, but the God depicted in Amos, who allowed suffering to make his people repent, or the prophet's view that suffering was punishment for disobedience, or Job's suffering as a test, or Jesus' execution parsed as the redemptive power of the cross. Suffering through an Old Testament lens happens because you deserved it or it's for a greater good. And you have heard these explanations for suffering. It's God's will, which is cold comfort imagining that God seems to want you to suffer for some mysterious higher purpose. I got that one at 10 years old from well-meaning neighbors when my dad died. Or, we only see one side of the tapestry, God sees both sides. So, 
Not only are you suffering, you're ignorant. And sometimes the answer to prayers is no. That was the only rationale my aunt could come up with as my SMU-bound cousin was dying from brain cancer and her prayers went unanswered. I think suffering is difficult to accept because of how we view God, the God we make up in our heads. I googled a religious site for an attribute list for God, and typically God is imaged as all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving. And apparently, we should add that God is infinite, immutable, self-sufficient, wise, faithful, good, just, merciful, gracious, holy, and glorious. And I think if we're going to metaphorically throw the kitchen sink at God, we might as well add that he's trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. The point I'm making is we make up a lot of specifics for a supposedly transcendent God. Do you know what split Christianity apart in 1054 into the Eastern and Western branches between Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. It was about things we can only speculate on because they are unknowable. In this case, the question of whether the Holy Spirit proceeded from both the Father and the Son or just the Father. Is Jesus the same as God or is the Son lesser than the Father? This was a huge argument over a pecking order established at the beginning of time when, frankly, none of us were around. So we create the list of attributes for God, like all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, and then wonder where that God is in our suffering. But it is not a God problem. It's a problem of the God that we imagine. When we encounter suffering in life, and we will encounter suffering in life, we can be left with two conclusions if we attribute to God those three qualities. Either God didn't show up, or God did show up, but not the one matching our list. My father-in-law after 60 years in the ministry, it took him three retirements to quit, <laughs> said that as he grew in his faith, his theology grew simpler. God is love. It's a relationship. That was it. I like this one-word list, love. I don't have to figure it out. I can feel it. Jesus was not forsaken. He was loved. There is suffering in the world. There just is. But we are not alone. Near the end of my mom's life, I got a call at college that I needed to come and say goodbye, that her time was short. My adult self has always 
wished I had stayed at the hospital with her those last few days rather than go back to school as she insisted. I think she knew I was emotionally overwhelmed and she was caring for me like moms do to the very last. What I realized for the first time as I wrote this proclamation is that she was not alone as I had thought and was never alone, not in waking up with snow on her blankets, not alone in death that will take us all. Amen.